please open in your Bibles to the letter to the Galatians, Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 11 through 24. If you're using one of the Bibles we've provided, you can turn to page 972 to find this reading. Here in Galatians chapter 1, Paul wants us to consider what is most important. What's the most important fact or reality about the universe and about your life and my life? And he wants us to see that what is most important is the gospel that God has revealed. In the first uh, sermon, we looked at verses 1 through 10, sort of Paul's introduction. And today we begin to look at the, the body of the letter proper. We'll see Paul kind of summarize where he's been and prepare us for where he's going by saying that he received God's gospel and not man's. And that is the gospel that's transformed him. And that is the gospel that he preaches. So let's read together these verses, starting in verse 11 of chapter 1 down to the end of the chapter. This is God's word. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I get up, go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. And then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that were in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. This is God's word. In verses 11 and 12, we get this high-level overview of the letter in which Paul summarizes where he's been and he prepares us from where, to where he wants to go. And he wants us to know, once again, that the gospel that he preaches is the gospel he received from God and not from man. Again, by summing up, he's also pointing us to what he's going to say next. He wants us to see that this miraculous and direct revelation of Christ to him explains how he got to be where he was, how he was once a persecutor of the church, a destroyer of the faith, and now he's become a preacher of the thing he tried to once destroy. It was God himself, he wants us to see, that arrested him on the way to Damascus. It was God who revealed the gospel to him, who revealed Christ to him. And he wants us to see this gospel is not man-made. It's not something that Paul maybe heard somewhere and is now adapted to his own ends. Rather, it's the genuine gospel. It's God's gospel. The Galatians can trust that it's genuine because it came from God. 
We might say that Paul has established then for us a kind of chain of custody for the gospel. What the Galatians received from Paul, Paul received from God. That's it. It was that direct. So Paul says in verse 12 that he received the gospel through a revelation of Jesus Christ. We're sort of back to the idea of apostleship that Paul began his letter with. Paul's not a purveyor of secondhand religious goods. And he's also not a religious innovator. He didn't learn the gospel from any man, nor has he been out among the focus groups trying to find that key message that will win the Gentiles. Paul says in verse 12 that he received this gospel through a revelation. God revealed Christ to him. And so the gospel we find Paul preaching and the gospel we find in the letter to the Galatians is not man's gospel, it's God's gospel. Paul can't emphasize this enough. This morning we're going to walk through four points about what this means for us, that this is God's gospel and not man's. So first we're going to see that man-made gospels serve man-made ends. Man-made gospels serve man-made ends. And then three points about the gospel itself. God's gospel is apocalyptic. God's gospel transforms sinners And God's gospel is the church's joy. So it's apocalyptic, it transforms sinners, and the gospel is the church's joy. But let's look at this first point. Man-made gospels serve man-made ends. One of the challenges of studying the book of Galatians is that we have one side of an argument. We hear Paul arguing against these opponents that he says were troubling the Galatians. And we don't have the other side. So we have to do our best to reconstruct what they were saying. An example of how we might do that is found in verse 20. As Paul is asserting that he only spent 15 days in Jerusalem and he only there met Peter and James, he asserts in this parenthesis, in what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Now we can only guess from that statement that people were asserting the opposite about him. You know, that Paul, all that he has, he learned from those Jerusalem leaders. And, and they probably were saying, and not only did he learn it from them, he's not even really representing the truth of what they preached. Whereas we are, are telling you the truth, Galatians. And they might even be saying, Paul's lying about his track record. That whole story about Damascus and what he heard there and how he immediately preached the gospel that Luke told you, that's not true. They're they're calling Paul a liar, and so he has to defend himself and says, what I'm telling you before God, I'm not lying. So we're kind of reconstructing what Paul was arguing against. We can go further, though, and not to sort of reconstruct. We can actually see the direct statements Paul says to contradict those he argues against. And one of the things he says, uh, a general kind of thing he says throughout the letter, is that his opponents... In what they preach have self-serving motives. So at the end of the letter, in chapter 6, verse 12, he says, It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. So Paul is saying these these troublesome teachers, they're, they're teaching what they're teaching, because they want to make a good showing in the flesh. They want to look good. They want to have the credit of your conversions. And they're trying to avoid persecution. 
They're trying to save their own skin. By preaching a gospel of Jesus plus the Jewish rituals, these, uh, these teachers were kind of trying to get Christianity to hide underneath Judaism. Judaism was sometimes persecuted, but it was least known and accepted in the Roman Empire, whereas Christianity was weird and not accepted. And so by, by kind of lumping themselves in with the Jews, these, these uh, false teachers were able to sort of hide and avoid persecution. So they were trying to avoid persecution, and they were trying to make a name for themselves. The next verse in chapter 6 says that they desire to have you circumcised so they may boast in your flesh. We know preachers like this who they want to see a big crowd because it reflects well on them. They want converts because they want to be able to say, look how many I converted. These false teachers have false motives. They're trying to serve man-made ends, and they've tailored their gospel to that end. Whereas Paul says, he boasts only in the cross of Christ. The false teachers wanted the satisfaction of winning converts. They wanted notches in their belt. They were motivated by vanity and pride. That's what I mean when I say that man-made gospels serve man-made ends. These ends of safety, security, pride. It may be that the Galatians, in receiving these false gospels, that they were motivated by similar ends. Maybe they wanted uh, a gospel that would make them more safe. Perhaps they felt that the, the gospel Paul preached put a bullseye on their back, but they could adopt these Jewish practices again and hide within Judaism. Or maybe they wanted a comfort, a sense of belonging that these Jewish rituals provided. Life in the Spirit was too unspecific. But Jewish laws, those are clear and comfortable. We can achieve that. We can form an identity around those things, perhaps. Man-made gospels serve our man-made goals. We see this in the false gospels that we're presented with today. Doesn't the so-called prosperity gospel present us with man-made goals, right? Health and wealth, if we just have the right kind of faith. I mean, those are things we all want already. It's convenient to have a gospel that presents us with those promises. Our, our ears are itching for that kind of news. But that's just only one example of a kind of gospel that serves man-made ends. Most of us know better than to confess kind of an outright blatant prosperity gospel, but we have trouble shaking it off completely. We might call a, a soft prosperity gospel the, the Benjamin Franklin gospel. Early to bed, early to rise makes the man health, healthy, wealthy, and wise, right? Poor Richard's Almanac. Now, we would never say God promises us success in the gospel, but deep down, we're tempted to believe that God owes us success because we've made the right decisions. That's one false gospel. It fits very well with our own ends. Another false gospel is the gospel of morality and good works, which flatters our pride, right? It tells us, you're not powerless. You have agency. You can do something about your spiritual state. Another false gospel is the, the follow your heart gospel, which tells you that God accepts you for who you are, and you don't need to repent or worry about sin. Rather, the emphasis here is, on a, a kind of grace that says God doesn't even intend to change you. He just approves of whatever it is you want to do. These man-made gospels are full of promises, but they're also powerless and deceptive when it comes to keeping those promises. 
The prosperity gospel leaves us discouraged and doubting God's love when suffering comes. All of these false gospels provide some kind of momentary, perhaps intellectual comfort or emotional comfort, but it's false comfort. It's a kind of comfort that will leave us very uncomfortable when we meet Jesus on Judgment Day. So we should ask, what kind of man-made gospel is most tempting to me? We should watch out for messages that appeal to our natural desires, the things that I already wanted apart from Jesus. We should realize that God's gospel is full of blessings for us, but it's not defined by us. God's gospel meets our deepest need. It provides forgiveness of our sins. It reconciles us to God. But we should know that our deepest need is not always the need we feel most urgently. In the gospel, we know that Christ comes to serve us. But that does not mean that Christ came to approve of every sinful whim that we have. We see in the Gospel of John that Christ serves us by washing us. It implies that we're dirty. We need to be cleansed. Christ serves us by confronting our sin. He serves us by taking our shame upon himself and dying on the cross for our sin. In the Gospel, Christ does meet us where we are, but he does not leave us where we are. That's God's Gospel. Paul did not preach a man-made gospel with man-made ends. He came to preach the gospel that God revealed to him. God's gospel. And God's gospel upends our lives. So that's our first point. God's gospel is not a man-made gospel. A man-made gospel serves man-made ends. Our second point shows us that God's gospel doesn't just upend our lives on an individual level. It upends the whole world. God's gospel is apocalyptic. Now, apocalyptic is a word that we associate with the end of the world, right? We said the apocalypse is upon us, you know? Uh, this, we got hurricanes and wars and rumors of wars. That's apocalyptic language, right? Apocalypse means revelation. It's the, the revelation of God's glory and power that we do rightly associate with the end of the world, but the New Testament teaches us to associate it with, with the gospel itself, you might know that if you, uh, older translations of the Bible have even in, uh, the word uh, revelation, the apocalypse of John, the last book of the Bible is called the apocalypse sometimes. It just means the revelation of God's power and glory. Well, Paul uses this word apocalypse twice in our passage. He says the Lord Jesus was revealed to him, and then later the Son of God was revealed in him. Paul received the gospel through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul received the gospel through an apocalypse of Christ. Now, it's fine that our English translators use revelation. That's, that's right that they did that. I'm not arguing with that. But our problem is we've lost our sense of wonder that Jesus was revealed. We've lost the sense of how world-shaking it is. But we need to recover it. We need to see what a world-changing thing it was that Jesus was revealed. When Christ came and died on the cross and rose from the dead, something truly apocalyptic happened. Heaven invaded earth. It was an end-of-days revelation of God's power and glory. 
because Jesus has come. Nothing can ever be again like it was. Paul knew this very well. Christ was revealed to the world, and then on the road to Damascus, Christ was revealed to him in a very personal way. The apocalypse came and found Paul. God arrested him as he was going about the business of arresting Christians. And he was never the same again. We'll come back to Paul in point number three, but for now I want us to think about what it means for us to say that this gospel is apocalyptic. Here are a few things that it means. First, it means that this gospel is the last word. The apocalyptic gospel is God's last word. The author of Hebrews makes this point for us when he opens his letter. He says that long ago and in various ways God spoke through the prophets, but now in these last days God has spoken to us by his Son. Jesus is God's last word, his end of days word. So we're not waiting for another message to come along and replace the gospel. God has spoken his last word through his son. We're not looking for some secret sauce to kind of fill in the missing piece of the puzzle that we don't yet have. Jesus is God's last word. It's the apocalyptic message, God's end of days message for us. So God's gospel is the revelation of his power and glory that the world was waiting for, but now has been revealed. That's the reason we read those Isaiah passages earlier, that we were waiting for this light to shine on the dark people walking in darkness, and it is shown in Christ. That's the first thing it means. The apocalyptic gospel means that it's God's last word. Second, the apocalyptic gospel is the gospel that gives life to the dead. It's God's word of life. When you read about apocalyptic literature, scholars have noted that it's marked by dualities. So you have light versus darkness, good versus evil. Well, if you read the book of Galatians, you find it's full of dualities. It's an apocalyptic book in that way. Paul contrasts faith and works, freedom and slavery, spirit and flesh, life and death. Again, in the gospel, those who walked in darkness, according to the flesh, under the law, have seen a great light. And we've been set free by this word of faith that is preached to us. Through faith in Christ, our sins are forgiven. We're right in God's eyes. We overcome death. We have life. It is God's word of life. Through this revelation of Jesus, the power of sin is broken. Death is defeated. The light has come. The darkness vanishes. It's the apocalyptic gospel. It's in this gospel that sinners find life and joy and peace with God by Christ's work. We can begin now to enjoy the eternal life with God that we'll have for all eternity. So the end times have come into the present through the work of Christ. Again, heaven has broken into earth. Christ has been revealed. So the apocalyptic gospel is God's word of life. Third, the apocalyptic gospel creates an apocalyptic people. In Ephesians 3, Paul writes that the church, in the church, the manifold wisdom of God has been made known to the rulers and to the authorities in the heavenly places. And he says in the verse right ahead of that, that this mystery has been waiting to be revealed for the ages. It's finally come true in the church. So we see here that 
In this church, in Ephesian church context, full of Jews and Gentiles who have become one new people by the power of the gospel, God's glory is displayed. Again, we kind of have another chain of custody. The gospel reveals Jesus Christ, and when he's believed by the church, the church now displays the glory of God. One of the things you see in evangelical culture is uh, some of us like to look for signs and wonders, right? And, and they're quick to spot in the headlines from the Mideast. This is the fulfillment of, of this or that prophecy, right? Uh, you'll have um, people quoting the book of Daniel and say, well, well, Russia is going to be the king of the north coming into the south, and they're going to invade the Holy Land. And, and these are the signs of the apocalypse. But Paul says, no. Here is the sign of the apocalypse. It's the church. The church are God's people, saved by God's grace, displaying God's glory. Do you want to see an end times revelation of God's power and glory? Look at a bunch of sinners who've been united to Christ by faith and who are now loving each other and who are displaying God's glory to the nations. We pray consistently in our church that we will not push our church relationships to the margins of our lives, but that we prioritize those relationships that we'd be serious and sincere with each other, that we would tell the truth about our lives and seek prayer and encouragement in the gospel. We pray that we would have theological conversations where we encourage each other with scripture and the gospel. We pray that we would do spiritual good to each other, that we'd encourage each other to follow Christ. We pray all this because we want to be the apocalyptic people of God. We want to be the people of God that reveals the glory of God. We want to be the people of the gospel who make Jesus known. So we are the apocalyptic people. The gospel creates us as that revealing people. And fourth, the apocalyptic gospel is worth dying for. The revelation of Jesus Christ is so great and powerful and gracious that it's worth our lives. Isn't that what we see the, the first apostles doing? They, they lay down their lives, many of them, for the sake of this gospel. Paul himself would do so. The gospel of Jesus Christ cannot be improved upon, and it is worth our lives. Wherever it leads us, we should follow. And if we take it lightly, or if we begin to get bored with the gospel, it's our own spiritual dullness that's being revealed. There's no more important message than this message that God reveals his power and grace through Jesus Christ. There's no other message that can bring sinners together to glorify God. The gospel is worth our wholehearted devotion. We recognize that this wholehearted devotion will look different in different Christians, right? Some Christians may, that wholehearted devotion may take them to share the gospel in another culture and become missionaries. Many of us will stay where we were born and will seek to obey the gospel by being good parents and spouses and church members and neighbors. Wherever, though, we are, we should spend our lives for the sake of this gospel. So God's gospel is the apocalyptic gospel. We should all ask, am I holding fast to that gospel? Or am I looking for something else? Have you placed your hope in the gospel? There's no other message that brings life. If you profess faith in Christ, then you should ask, are you fully committed to revealing Christ's glory 
with your brothers and sisters in the church? Are you living a life fully devoted to Christ? Once and for all, God has revealed his power and glory and grace through Jesus Christ. And when he comes again in glory, when Jesus returns, it won't really be a new revelation, but only the fulfillment and completion of what he's already begun to reveal in the gospel. This is the apocalyptic message, the message that saves now and for eternity. God's gospel is the apocalyptic gospel. Our third point this morning is that God's gospel transforms sinners. Paul tells us how Christ was revealed to him and how Christ changed him. And it's clear that no man-made message could have done this. Only God's gospel can transform sinners. It appears that Paul had shared his testimony with the Galatians, or perhaps his opponents had shared it for him. But these Galatians, he can say, knew what he was like in his former days. How he had been persecuting the church, how trying to destroy the church and the gospel. But now, he's giving his life to preaching that gospel and to planting churches. In his account of his transformation, he accomplishes two things at once. On the one hand, he's talking to these Galatians who are tempted to return to a form of Judaism, and he's saying, look, I left that behind. And he's also proclaiming to them the power of the gospel to transform people. Let's look at both of those things. First, this argument from Paul, if I left Judaism, why are you turning to it? That's part of his reason for sharing his story, I think. These Galatians were tempted to adopt forms of the Jewish religion, maybe not the whole thing, at least maybe circumcision or the food laws. And Paul is saying, look, I was more deeply committed to Judaism than you can imagine. I was excelling even my own peers. I loved the traditions of my fathers. I was zealous for them. And he's reminding these Galatians, look, if that was me, why why are you accepting this stuff from these false teachers? You should be more suspicious of what you're hearing if I left that behind. He's saying, "Can, can these Galatian troublers, can they really claim to love the law of Moses as much as I did? Can they claim to understand the Jewish traditions better than I can understand it? He's saying, if I've left that stuff for the sake of Christ, don't you turn back to it. He wants them to see, if you're following Christ, Christ will not lead you back to those traditions. Later in the letter, Paul's going to use the images of slavery and freedom. He'll say that the the ways of Judaism are the ways of slavery. The the attempt to keep the law, that's, that's the earthly Jerusalem, but We're citizens of the heavenly Jerusalem. We're sons of the free woman. And so be free. Christ has set you free. He doesn't use that imagery here, but you can kind of hear it working beneath the surface. He's no longer under the law. He's no longer enslaved to it. He doesn't want the Galatians to be enslaved to it either. He wants them to be free. Well, if you're a Christian, you've been set free by Christ. Now, for a bunch of Gentiles in this room, it may not be appropriate to say we were under the law of Moses in the sense that Old Testament Jews were, but we do know that we've been freed from the grip of sin and death. We've been freed from our old idolatries, and we've been brought into this new way of Christ's grace. We don't have to earn our way in. God gives us entry 
based on the work of Christ. And so the gospel says, now that you're free, live in freedom. Don't re-enslave yourself. Don't try to work your way into God's good favor every day. Instead, know that you are forgiven by the work of Christ. Are there any ways that you're trying to re-enslave yourself? Have you built a treadmill of performance where you've just got to keep, keep running to feel like you're in God's good graces? Are you in some way relying on your own ability to be accepted by God? Paul would say, look how God has transformed me. I've left those traditions that I love so much, and I count them all lost for the sake of knowing Christ, he says in Philippians. Again, at the end of Galatians, that, that he only boasts in the cross. Join Paul in only boasting in the cross. Each day, wake up not trying to earn your way into God's favor, but receiving God's favor as his gift to you in Christ Jesus. By faith in Christ, you are a child of God. You are loved by God. This is to be received by faith and not earned. The life, of, the life death, and resurrection of Christ has set us free. And Paul's own biography shows us that. He's been set free from those things, and he's alive in Christ. This is one thing Paul is doing. He's arguing, don't return to the Judaism that I left. But he's also showing the power of the gospel to change sinners. Again, he once hated Christ so much, he's try, he tried to destroy Christ's church. But God stopped him on the road to Damascus. The Christ he hated appeared to him and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's funny, when you read that story, Paul knows it's God talking to him. He says to him, Lord, and then he's confronted with the earth-shattering revelation. The Lord who is speaking to you, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. At that moment, the Lord Jesus Christ was revealed to Paul. He is Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Paul woke up to the truth of who Jesus was. He came to know that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. And he came to see his sin, that he had been persecuting God's church. In his zealous Judaism, he thought he was working on behalf of God. And now he finds out he's been opposing the Lord, God's own Son. With a kind of gods that human beings imagine, that should have been the end of Paul, right? And in our kinds of gods, they just strike people down who do that kind of thing, right? But that wasn't the end of Paul. The Lord saves him. The Lord shows him mercy. Paul recounts in 1 Timothy God's mercy. He says that he was the foremost of sinners, and yet he received mercy, that Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul, a trophy of mercy. Can God show mercy to you? I mean, are you loaded with sin and shame? Have you done some things that you would be horrified for others to know? Paul says, God showed me mercy to show you God's patience. To show you that if you trust in Christ, you too can be forgiven and find life. Paul's example shows us the greatness 
of God's grace and power. Here in Galatians, Paul says that God was pleased to reveal his son in me. Normally, when we're talking about revelations, we would think of of the word to. God revealed his son to me. But this revelation was deeper than that. God didn't really show something to Paul. He didn't really open Paul's eyes to something he didn't know before. God transformed Paul's very life. Christ overcame Paul. God gave him a new heart. The gospel was dramatically and powerfully brought home to him. The Son of God was revealed in him, and he was forever changed. After this encounter, Paul can say, It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Galatians 2.20 Only through the gospel can a sinner like Paul, or like you, or like me, be transformed. The gospel of the crucified and risen Lord is the only message that turns persecutors into preachers and turns sinners into saints. The law of Moses did not produce that kind of new life. At best, the law points a spotlight onto our sin and shows us our need for something more than the law. Only in Jesus does God pour out his mercy. Only in Jesus does he change the dead hearts of sinners and change us into living children of God. I have to admit, if I were Paul, I would just not mention my past. I wouldn't want all those embarrassing details about me to be out there. I mean, he was so wrong. And it's not just embarrassing, but he had been involved in doing real harm, holding the coats of those who stoned Stephen, going around arresting Christians and sending them back to Jerusalem. He was attempting to destroy, he says. He was a, a henchman. He was like a religious terrorist almost. But the Lord saved this man. He poured out his mercy and love on Paul so that future sinners would know that in Christ there is mercy for us. Again, there are things about our lives that are embarrassing and shameful. Our sin cuts wounds into our lives that are deep. But Jesus is the great physician. He's the one who washes sinners and makes us clean. He's the resurrected one who makes the dead live. No matter how great our sin is, the gospel is greater. When we've been changed by the gospel, we're then able to confront the worst details about ourselves because those things no longer condemn us. Christ took them for us. Paul's experience gives hope to all sinners. None of us will be able to claim to have the exact testimony of Paul that Christ appeared to him to appear to us on the road like that. But if we belong to Christ, God has revealed his son in us. We might be able to tell of how we first came to know him. Maybe it was through our mom or our Sunday school teacher or our dad, a friend in college telling us the gospel, a neighbor. And we know that when we came to trust the gospel, we didn't just come to know some facts about God or doctrines of salvation. We came to know Jesus, the one who died in our place. We came to trust that Jesus took our terrible sin and shame upon himself. And he hung on the cross to pay its price. 
The gospel that saved Paul still saves sinners today. It's revealed to us in the pages of the New Testament. And through the New Testament, Paul continues preaching this gospel. Through the gospel, God regenerates dead hearts. He grants us faith in Christ. And so we can say, we've died to sin and we are alive to God. It's only the true gospel that can do this. Only God's gospel gives this kind of hope for redemption. Religious messages that tell us to work harder, they give no hope. The promises of the so-called prosperity gospel, it gives ultimately no hope. It just leaves us disappointed. Only the work of God alone and Christ alone can save sinners. God arrested Paul on the road to Damascus so that this zealous prosecutor of Christians can become a preacher. And God still arrests us, doesn't he? He still arrests us and he turns his enemies into his children by showing Christ to them. God's gospel transforms sinners, and only God's gospel can change the worst of sinners. Paul's final point for us this morning is that God's gospel is the church's joy. Paul's arguing that James and Peter were not the source of his gospel. He says in verse 23 that he was unknown in person to the churches of Judea. He had not been around them much. I guess some of them may have remembered this guy who ran around persecuting us, but in terms of his Christian ministry, he hadn't preached in many of their churches or ministered in that part of the country. So they couldn't, probably many of them, have picked Paul out of a lineup. They only knew him by what they had heard about him. And his reputation is basically a summary of what he's already told us. They knew him like this. He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. That's how Paul is known in the churches of Judea. They knew about how the gospel had transformed Paul, and now he's a preacher of that gospel. And because of this, Paul says, they glorified God. Because of me. The Jerusalem churches, they're not wringing their hands because Paul's up in Galatia preaching the gospel and not requiring the observance of the Jewish law. They're not worried about Paul's gospel. They're glorifying God because of Paul's gospel and what he preaches. They're glorifying God because he once was trying to destroy the faith and now he's preaching it. He once was trying to tear down churches and now he's planting them. They're glorifying God because God sends his servants all over the world preaching the gospel, some of whom used to be persecutors of the gospel. The gospel was their joy, and they rejoiced that it was being preached. You know, here in our church, we're not ashamed to talk about the things that make us distinct. We're, we have our Baptist distinctives. We'll talk to you about our, our congregationalism. We think those things are important. But we don't hold to them or talk about them because we're ecclesiology nerds. We hold to them for two big reasons. First, we see them in the Bible. And second, because these things uphold and display the gospel. So our view of the church and church membership, our practices of baptism and the Lord's Supper, our approach to worship, all those things we are passionate about because we are passionate about the gospel. And we want the gospel to be clear. In other words, deep down, who we are most fundamentally, we are gospel people. The gospel is our joy. 
Hopefully you hear this when we pray for other churches. You are also gospel churches, both here in our local area and around the state and country and world. We rejoice when the gospel is preached and when there are Bible-believing churches that are displaying the gospel. Being gospel people means that we're thrilled when people join our church and we grow numerically. That's great. But we also rejoice when a revival breaks out at the church down the street and more Christians are welcomed into God's kingdom. We know that it's the gospel message that saved us. So we want to do all we can to highlight the gospel. We're gospel people because it's through this message that we have found life. We can't think of Paul's story without thinking of our own story. That once we were lost, but now we've been found. That we were blind, but now we see. We were enemies, but now we're friends of God. You know, before we were Christians, we may not have been as honest as Paul was in his opposition to God. We may have thought we were good people. But we know that at one point, God did reveal his son to us. He did give us eyes to see. He gave us eyes to see that our sin deserved God's punishment. That would have been right and good for God to punish us forever. But then he also gave us eyes to see Jesus in his beauty. He gave us eyes of faith that trusted in Jesus to pay for our sin and bring us to God. We were blind, but now we see. We were lost, but God found us. We were enemies, but now we're children. We're gospel people. Because in the gospel, we see the grace and the power and goodness of God. And so the gospel, God's gospel, is our joy. We count all things as lost for the sake of knowing Christ. We boast in nothing but the cross of Christ. In Christ and the power of the gospel, we see God's grace revealed to us. In his apocalyptic gospel, God's world-shaking, life-changing, church-creating, final word has been spoken. That's the message that saved us. And so we glorify God because of this gospel. Has God's gospel saved you? Let's pray. Our Father, we do want to be gospel people. We pray that all that we do would be by faith in Christ and in submission to him. We pray that we would preach the gospel clearly and truly. We pray that we would live out the gospel in every area of our lives. We pray for your help each day to repent of sin and receive the forgiveness that Christ purchased on the cross. And we pray that in this church, we would display the gospel through our lives together. Father, we thank you for this world-shaking message and that we have hope for the future because of what Christ has done. We pray, Jesus, you would come quickly. Amen.